Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters and today we'll examine a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with the latest CBS News poll that finds 80% of Republicans saying that if Trump is convicted, he should be able to serve as president, with 76% saying the indictments are politically motivated. Joining us to discuss whether it is possible for Trump's supporters to be told the truth and accept it is Dr. Alan Francis, a professor emeritus and former chair of psychiatry and behavioral science at Duke University. He's the author of the award-winning international bestseller, Saving Normal, and the reference works, Essentials of Psychiatric Diagnosis, and his latest book is Twilight of American Sanity, a psychiatrist analyzes the age of Trump, now out in an updated paperback version. Then, as Trump escalates his war against the rule of law and calls on his armed followers for a right-wing rebellion against the deep state, we will look into the precarious nature of political stability in America should Trump lose again or go to jail. Joining us is Sean Wilentz, Professor of American History at Princeton University, whose books include The Rise of American Democracy, Jefferson to Lincoln, The Politicians and the Egalitarians, and his latest book, No Property in Man, Slavery and Anti-Slavery at the Nation's Founding. Then finally, we'll assess whether the merger between the PGA and the Saudi LIV golf tournaments will ever happen now that a U.S. Senate probe was launched on Monday with Senator Blumenthal asking for documents from the PGA and LIV, which the Saudis have been zealously resisting. Joining us is Matt Stoller, a research director at the American Economic Liberties Project. He was a senior policy advisor and budget advisor to the Senate Budget Committee and also worked in the United States House of Representatives on financial services policies, including Dodd-Frank, the Federal Reserve, and the foreclosure crisis. His latest book is Goliath, the Hundred-Year War Between Monopoly Power and Democracy, and he writes the popular monopoly-focused newsletter B.I.G. Big, where his latest article is The Saudi PGA Toured Golf Deal Isn't Going to Happen. And joining us now, Dr. Alan Francis, who's a professor emeritus and former chair of psychiatry and behavioral science at Duke University. He's the author of the award-winning international bestseller, Saving Normal, and the reference work, Essentials of Psychiatric Diagnosis. And his latest book out in paperback now is Twilight of American Sanity, A Psychiatrist Analyzes the Age of Trump. Welcome to Background Briefing, Dr. Alan Francis. Always a pleasure, Ian. So in terms of analyzing the age of Trump, the age of Trump, of course, is not going away. He is the front runner for the Republican nomination, and he could become president again. He's polling at 61%, and his nearest rival, Ron DeSantis, is at 23%. And now we're just learning from a CBS News poll that 80% of Republicans say if Trump is convicted... He should be able to serve as president. And 76% say the indictments are politically motivated. So has the country gone mad, or at least a big constituency of the country, including one of the two major parties, the Republican Party? They seem to be doubling down, throwing their lot further into the embrace of Donald Trump. Well, I think... Most of this was completely predicted and was predicted by me and many others, and that our country's never been 
at a more serious existential crisis than it is right now. Uh, it's unimaginable the harm that Trump could do in the next four years were he to be elected president. I think the odds are against that, but it's, it's something that has to be worried about. But but also, and equally dangerous, is the possibility that in um, losing, he's not a good loser, and in losing either the primary or the general election, he may do his best to take the country down. He may develop um, Adolf Hitler bunker mentality. If, if I'm going to be humiliated and destroyed, why not humiliate and destroy the rest of the country? And there are, are already very concerning signs in the way that he and other people representing him and are, are speaking about these indictments as if it's a call to violent action. And I wouldn't be surprised if, in fact, I would predict that there will be acts of violence that will be committed in his name and on his behalf in, in the um, interim between now and the election. And if it's small actions in a way that may be positive in reducing the country's appetite for more Trump, but if it rises to the level of massive violence in our country, it could create a situation that we've never experienced before that has been catastrophic in other countries and that would be um, the gravest threat to our democracy since the founding of the republic. But why do so many Americans not see that? What, what do they see in this man who's been a serial criminal all of his life? He was trained and tutored by Roy Cohn, his dealings with the Russians are murky at best and probably he's in Putin's pocket as worst, as people in the intelligence community have said on a number of occasions. And his handling of classified material is so reckless that he's being tried under the Espionage Act. I mean, Senator Graham said, oh, he's not a traitor. Well, how can you keep reality winner in jail and not put this guy in jail? I just don't understand what they see in him, why he is a hero as he doubles down on criminality and defiance and attacks the rule of law. That's what he's doing. Well, it happens that um, I just traveled cross-country by car, and most of the trip was through the South, and I spoke to lots of people. And it is amazing. I don't think it's anything that we can understand. Um, I think people who see through Trump can't understand why he's not completely transparent as an idiot, clown, and dangerous psychopath to uh, people who adore him. We just can't get it. But it's certainly true. And even people who I respect, um, people who I think are smart in the South, uh, somehow or other have bought it. I think part of the difference is what we watch and what uh, so social um, um, media outlets we, we, we follow. So that the view of the world that we have is very different than someone who's 24-7 watching Fox News, watching one of the newer, even worse uh, national networks, or even worse, reading the right-wing, crazy, conspiracy theory, social uh, networking sites, that we're in a different reality. And within their reality, it's kind of a cult. And um, people who love Trump look at us with the same disbelief that we look at them. 
So people would look at me like I was crazy to think that Biden's administration has been an excellent one that accomplished as much as it possibly could within the uh, the limitations of having a minority government. That we see the world so differently from the way they see the world that it's impossible to have a meaningful conversation. And the hope is, I mean, the best thing that can come out of this horrible situation is that um, there's enough self-destructiveness within the Republican Party, enough of a battle between Trump and, and DeSantis and, and Christie and some of the others, that at least 10 or 20 percent of the Republicans are peeled away and that um, Biden or whoever is running for the Democratic presidency wins by a solid majority, an incontrovertible solid majority. The, the very best thing that could happen from this is um, an electoral victory that's convincing. Um, the, the worst thing that can happen from this are some combination of either Trump losing and bringing down not just himself and his party, but doing his best to bring down the country, or Trump winning and really using the tools of government to destroy what we, we've had been able to achieve over the last 240 years. Um, the odds are that Trump will self-destruct himself in the Republican Party and that the, the results of the election will be favorable. But you wouldn't want to play these odds, especially since we saw what happened in 2016. It's very dangerous to be playing a game this close. And it, there's a considerable risk, I would say probably 10 or 20 percent, that what, what he does in going down, if he's defeated, will reproduce on a much larger scale what happened on January 6th, that he may call out his um, supporters in acts of defiance. And we've seen cities burn in America before. Uh, we've seen right-wing terrorists do terrible things. And the possibility is that there could be a, a large-scale um, rioting in the streets of America in, in a way that's happened very rarely in our past. And, and, and it, when it's happened in the past, it's usually been the underclass rebelling against um, conditions like Martin Luther King being killed or the recent cop shooting things. It's never threatened American democracy because the uh, forces of law and order were always on the side of suppressing the uh, riots. If there are right-wing riots, there are enough right-wing sympathizers within the police forces, the uh, sheriffs, the border guards, the uh, ICE, and the military that there's no telling how much out of hand it yet because when the forces that are meant to suppress disorder actually tolerate or encourage it, um, the scale of destruction can be that much greater. So this is a, the riskiest time in the world. And I think the only thing people can do at this point that's meaningful is to get out the vote, especially the, the um, young people in America who have a future uh, at risk, um, who tend to be solidly democratic, who tend not to vote in large numbers. If there were ever a time for the young people of America to be mobilized, this is that time because it's their future that's most at risk. Well, unfortunately, you were saying earlier, Dr. Francis, that even if you have this situation where 80% of Republicans say that if Trump is convicted, he should be able to serve as president, uh, meaning that there are 20% of Republicans who don't feel that way and that they might vote a Democrat or support Biden, on the other hand, you've got 20% of Democrats supporting a conspiracy theorists, RFK Jr. 
Yeah, I, 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 again, I think that Biden is not the ideal candidate at this point. I think he's been a very successful president on paper. And uh, that's because the presidency really isn't one person. It's an administration. And his administration has been brilliantly successful given the conditions. But he doesn't look good. He doesn't always sound good. He's at an age when no, no one's ever run at his age. And I think that the, the risks are considerable. Suppose he has a stroke in the middle of the election. Um, so many things can go wrong now that the only hope, I think, is to, to swing the odds in the favor of a return to sanity is to really have a massive, unified, um, democratic, um, and both in the sense of party demo- Democrat, but also in the sense of American democracy, um, alliance of people who put away petty differences. There can't be a struggle between progressive Democrats and centrist Democrats. There, there should be a massive flight, and 20% would be a massive flight of Republicans away from this party, realizing how dangerous it is in the future. Um, I, th- I think if there are some small outbreaks like January 6th, that might be salutary. It would be like a stress inoculation. Uh, that if, if there are, it would be terrible for the victims involved, and I'm not, you know, I'm, I'm unhappy about even having to say this, but it would be better if the, some small things happen now rather than big things happen later. And um, we're not out of the woods if Trump loses. We're not out of the woods if he loses for two reasons. One, he may try to bring down the country as best he can. And two, the people who defeat him are no better, in some ways much more dangerous because they're smarter and less impulsive. So DeSantis' presidency might be more dangerous even than the Trump presidency. Well, if Trump were rational and if he was in uh, deep legal trouble, which he seems to be getting into more and more, he would throw his lot in with DeSantis and help elect DeSantis in order to get DeSantis to pardon him. Yeah, I think that that's a really, that's a real possibility that if he can swallow his pride, if he's scared enough, that he uh, he might make kind of the kind of deal Yeltsin made with Putin, that um, I'll be your kingmaker, but then you have to make sure that you protect me afterwards. Um, that that that's a really I think uh, that would be the smartest play for Trump and for the Republican Party. I'm not sure he can do that. I'm not sure that his narcissism would allow him to make the calculation that he would have to rise raise someone else above him in order to avoid the consequent legal consequences. But I guess it would depend in part on how strong the cases are. And I wish these cases had been done a year before. I mean, there was too much delay in this, and a lot of it was Trump-induced with constant appeals, but the timing could not be worse than having it right before the election. I really hope that the uh, Atlanta um, investigation of his tampering with the, uh, the vote there comes to fruition as soon as possible and as convincingly as possible. And that the multiple, um, he said he could stand on Fifth Avenue and shoot someone. This was in 2015. He said he, he could, Trump said he could stand on Fifth Avenue and shoot someone and not lose any voters. And that seemed impossibly arrogant at the time and completely accurate now. So far, rape, um, theft, uh, tax cheating, um, insurrection, encouraging violence, uh, none of these things have stopped him. And um, the hope is that the weight of the legal um, consequences from all of these things cumulatively 
will at least induce that 20% to stay at home or to vote against them. And that this is done with a minim minimum of violence. But as I said before, the, all sorts of risks of his winning, which sounds impossible, but we've learned that the impossible happened once, or in losing or bringing down the House. So given that the country is polarized and people are living in alternative realities and uh, in post-truth America, it's impossible to get the kind of consensus that there used to be when Walter Cronkite delivered the news. Those days are over. And it would seem that the right has been so effectively brainwashed, as, you, as you've made the case, Dr. Francis, that they don't see what... I and you and a lot of people in this country see in this tawdry fraud, this disgraceful man, you'd have to scour the planet to find a human being worse than Donald Trump, <laughs> yet he's adored, and they're sticking by him, and he's more popular than ever, and they're doubling down. So that's the reality that we we are facing here. So is it possible, then, the the fact that Bill Barr went on Fox on Sunday and basically said, Trump is toast, and made a case for why the indictments were very powerful and why uh, he should be worried. In fact, he should probably end up in jail. Of course, that not that many people watch Fox, but I spoke recently with Miles Taylor, who was the chief of staff of the head of Homeland Security, and he was in the, in the Oval Office on a number of occasions, and I've been told by so many people that have dealt with Trump personally that the guy's crazy, and you know it in seconds, and that his behavior in the White House was so outrageous that if all of these people like General Kelly, General Mattis, Bolton, Barr, and if people like you know George W. Bush and all whatever's left of the Republican Party, could they en masse sort of tell the American people, we've seen this guy operate. He's stupid. He's dangerous. He's sick. He's sadistic. Would that work? Well, I think he's crazy like a fox. He manages to weave his spell on many tens of millions of people through a cleverness that we don't understand because it's not the way we see the world. But he's, he's crazy like a fox. I think that the, um, if the donor class, if the billionaires of the world, if the Rupert Murdochs of the world were willing to put their greed aside and in the service not just of the country, but their own, no other country, no other aristocracy in the history of the world has ever armed the peasants with military-grade weapons. And I think that the um, greedy aristocrats, the billionaires of the world who have perpetrated the uh, fraud that cultural issues are more important than economic issues in order to protect their own you know, great wealth and their power. If, if they realized, if all of the donors realized that Trump was more dangerous to them than uh, he is even to the country, and that they, their inter best interest, long-term interest, would rest on opposing him, and some of that's happened. A lot of the Trump donors have soured on Trump, and they're trying to use DeSantis as their next pony in the race. But I think it would take the, uh, a degree of, of, of fear and honesty amongst the Republican leadership, which so far has not been very much apparent. The, the Mitch McConnells of the world are remaining largely silent um, rather than coming out strongly. And um, the, um, when the Koch brothers come out with the fact that they consider Trump to be 
and, and they do consider Trump to be a real danger, not just the country, but to them. And if, if there were a public, as you say, a kind of public um, announcement amongst the uh, uh, you know, hundreds of Republican leaders that he was dangerous. But so far, that hasn't happened. Uh, so far, everyone's been willing to ride the crest and to take advantage of the gains that they get. The powerful people in the country have really promoted Trump up until this point. And until they decide that he's more dangerous to them than helpful to them, and some of them have, but maybe not enough have. But uh, unless Rupert Murdoch and Fox News switch, and they have to some degree distanced themselves. They haven't switched. They haven't said, you know, we were wrong. Trump's a danger to the country. And, you know, they haven't tried to convince their viewers not to back Trump. And until that happens, unless that happens, I don't see the polarization diminishing. And they're afraid that they would lose their power and financial gain, that Trump is so embedded in the, the, the Trump that they've created and embedded in the psyche of 50 million Americans is now so solidly within their um, their hearts and minds that they would just lose their power and their ratings if they suddenly ditched them. So they partly distanced themselves, but so far there hasn't been a concerted, uh, determined opposition to Trump from within the Republican Party. And certainly that would be, um, that won't solve the problem. Trump could still call out the uh, his loyal you know, brown shirts, but it would certainly go a long way to it. Now, to be to be a little bit optimistic, because I, I can't say I'm very optimistic, but to be a little bit optimistic, the last election was telling. And the combination of the Supreme Court ruling on abortion, uh, the, the fact that Trump may be under tremendous legal uh, pressure and condemnation, uh, the fact that not all Republicans are willing to, to, to swallow the Kool-Aid, there's considerable hope that the Democrats will win the presidency, although it'll be very difficult in the Senate to hold the majority there, and who knows what will happen in the House. But anyone who's complacent about the situation, anyone feels like, oh, I don't have to vote, is really, um, and Burke said, no one ever made a big mistake, bigger mistake than doing nothing because they could only do little. And I think at this point, everyone should be feeling that they have to vote, get their friends out voting, People should be ringing doorbells and thinking about um, whatever they can do financially with um, argument with friends, with whatever anyone can do at this point to save our country. It is that moment. And uh, there may not be another. If, if Trump wins with a majority in both houses, even if he wins without a majority in both houses, with the Supreme Court being solidly really dangerous for the next 30 years, um, Things don't look good. Well, I thank you for joining us here today, Dr. Alan Francis. Thank you, Ian. And again, I've been speaking with Dr. Alan Francis, who's Professor Emeritus and former Chair of Psychiatry and Behavioral Science at Duke University. He's the author of the award-winning international bestseller, Saving Normal, and the reference works, Essentials of Psychiatric Diagnosis. And his latest book is Twilight of American Sanity, A Psychiatrist Analyzes the Age of Trump now in an updated paperback version. We're going to take a brief station break and back looking into the precarious nature of political stability in America should Trump lose again or go to jail as Trump escalates his war against the rule of law and calls on his armed followers for a right-wing rebellion against the deep state. 
Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Sean Wilentz, Professor of American History at Princeton University. His books include The Rise of American Democracy, Jefferson to Lincoln, and The Politicians and the Egalitarians. And his latest book is No Property in Man, Slavery and Anti-Slavery at the Nation's Founding. Welcome to Background Briefing, Sean Wilentz. Great to be back here, Ian. Well, thanks for joining us. And the rhetoric coming from Donald Trump is quite incendiary and dangerous and revolutionary. Um, Mm -hmm. And Hitler targeted the Jews as the problem. Ron DeSantis is targeting the woke. But Donald Trump is targeting radical left Marxist Democrats, which don't exist as far as I know, uh, (laughs) and the FBI and law enforcement. Right. So are we heading for uh, any kind of showdown here, not just necessarily tomorrow in in Miami at the courthouse, but as this presidential race gets underway with this inflammatory and dangerous yeah. rhetoric coming from Trump, essentially yeah. calling for a right-wing revolution? Yeah, I mean, that's what he's been doing at least since January 6th, so that none of this is surprising to me. Um, you know, what he'll do, I mean, what he might do tomorrow, say, I mean, he's very unpredictable, so you can't tell. But look, I mean, we've been in a quasi-revolutionary situation for a long time. Um, judge, you know, Michael Ludig said this, a very conservative judge said that we're on the brink of this. And um, that is exactly what Trump is threatening. Um, and we'll see what happens. But look, he has basically established himself as the legitimate force for uh, uh, the majority of the Republican Party, obviously, and it means a good segment of the American people believe that he is the legitimate government and that the American government is illegitimate, has no authority, is the deep state. This is all Steve Bannon's doing. And, um, you know, a lot of people believe that. And when you have that kind of divided authority, divided legitimacy, you're in a very dangerous situation, I think. Um, or at least a, a dangerous situation. Maybe that's a little bit too much, but I mean, it's certainly one that, that is very unusual and um, one that Trump is playing to the hilt. And we can expect more of this. And I think you're right, Ian. I mean, that's basically what he's calling for is a right-wing coup, revolution, whatever you want to call it. And um, um, that's what he's threatening. And people ought to be aware of that, that that's what he's threatening. Well, most revolutions are bottom-up. Revolutions, in effect, coming from the disenfranchised and the poor Mm -hmm. and the downtrodden Mm -hmm. against the ruling class. And that's sort of, history is full of that. If there's a right-wing revolution in America, it's so much more dangerous because the very people on the right who would be revolting, and arguably are revolting, but who would be revolting, are heavily armed. And nowhere on the planet has the ruling class allowed people to be armed to the level that it's happened here in the United States. So yes. that's what I, what I find uniquely frightening about this moment. Yeah, I mean, look, ever since they got rid of the assault weapon ban that, that Clinton got in in the mid-90s, um, people are armed to the teeth with military-grade weapons. We saw that on January 6th. Um, they are armed. That was, a, that was nothing compared to what might be coming down the line. Um, so yeah, it is nerve wracking to say the least that this is a bottom up revolution of a kind, at least he has a populist following the same way that, you know, other revolutionaries like Hitler have had. Um, so this is not, um, 
it, it may be in the, in the interests. You know, people think of revolutions as coming from the left. Well, they don't always come from the left. And uh, we could be seeing something like that now. It's being done under a shadow of legitimacy. He is running for office. He could win the election. If he wins the election, I presume that he will transform American government in very dangerous ways as best he can. There are still some checks and, ba- and, and balances in there. There's still some guardrails. There is the, you know, the, the Congress and so forth. But he is certainly doing his best to do that. And um, again, I think this is um, there's the conjuries of people uh, who are behind all of this. And I think Bannon is the uh, is, is. Well, it would be and it is a different revolution in the sense that the people who normally put down revolutions are the police and the military. Mm-hmm. And they are mm-hmm. heavily infiltrated, are they not, by Trumpsters? Well, there's that. I mean, you wonder what happens if it comes to that kind of confrontation. And, you know, I mean, there I'm less, I'm less worried if it's that, if that's what they're talking about. I think that they're thinking about doing it by you know, electoral means. I mean, that's not, they're not going to be storming the Winter Palace or anything. Uh, these, that, that, that's not what the strategy is now. They tried that on January 6th. It didn't work. Um, but, you know, I think if it comes to that kind of confrontation where the military will run, well, you know, the president of the United States is, a, is Joe Biden. It's not Donald Trump, as was the case in January 6th. And the military has shown itself thus far to be uh, you know, extremely loyal to the Constitution, not to Trump. So, uh, you know, overall, I'd be more confident of that. Yeah, I mean, there are the Trumpsters all over the place. There are Trump people all over the, the Secret Service, um, although they didn't quite get it. You know, they, they did not prevail on January 6th, but they're, they're there. Um, you know, if it comes to a military confrontation like that, I'm actually not quite so uh, nervous. Um, but I think it's going to they're going to try to do it a different way, a much safer way, obviously, a way that we might might be more successful, which is to get Trump reelected. And the CBS poll that just came out indicates that 80 percent of Republicans say that if Trump is convicted, he should be able to serve as president. And 76 percent say the indictments are politically motivated. And he's polling at 61% compared to DeSantis at 23%. Yeah, I always thought DeSantis was a, fl- <laughs> a flash in the pan. I mean, this is not the GOP. This is the TOP. It's Trump's own party. He owns the Republican base. And uh, not, no, none of these characters is going to shake that. Um, no one of them could. The more of them that are out there, that'll be a replay of 2016. So, I mean, Trump is going to be the, politi- the, the Republican nominee in 2024, I mean, barring uh, some health crisis or something, barring some act of God. That is what the reality is. And um, I, I don't see anything that can change that reality. So and, and as for the, 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 the polling figures, I mean, uh, you, you're not you can't be surprised at that. I mean, it's been this way all the way along. I mean, it's not simply that. You know, the, the old idea that, you know, he could stand on Fifth Avenue and shoot somebody and people still vote for him. Not a thing, but it's now become something bigger. It's a real political fact. <laughs> Trump is a political fact. And his people are, um, you know, they, they see any attack on him, right, as a more of a reason to support him rather than less of a reason. People who think that his getting, you know, convicted, indicted, what, that this is going to change anybody's mind is crazy because they see it as an attack by the illegitimate state upon their hero, upon their champion, 
upon the man who stands for them. They see, as he put it the other day in one of his speeches, you know, they see an attack on him as an attack on them. And that's not going to change. Um, so that all of these, you know, people think that the indictment's going to hurt him with his people. That's crazy. On the other hand, it could very well hurt him with other, you know, other voters who are not at his base. So it may be a strategy to get him, you know, the nomination, but then to ensure his, his, his loss um, in the general election. Um, that could be very well what's going on. But, you know, first things first, the first thing is the nomination. And I'd say it's just going to all the all these figures just confirm what we've been thinking for a long time about his ownership of the Republican Party. So in other words, Sean, you're saying that given that the CBS poll just found out that 80 percent of Republicans say if Trump is convicted, he should be able to serve as president. That leaves 20 percent that could possibly be lured across to vote for Maybe. Biden. Or, or at least not vote at all. Um, mm-hmm. But again, it, it depends on where and where these people are, which you, which you don't get in the CBS poll. I mean, they, are they in Michigan? Are they in Wisconsin? Are they in states that could flip? Mm-hmm. I mean, the Electoral College puts everything in a very different perspective. But yeah, look, I mean, there are Republicans out there who don't like what Trump is doing, but will they vote for him in the end? My guess is that most of them will um, at the moment because they so hate the Democrats. Even normal Republicans hate the Democrats so much. So the demonization is not just about the Trumpification of the Republican Party, but it's also about the ways in which, you know, uh, the demonization of the Democrats cuts in such a way that even people who don't like Trump are necessarily going to vote for for Biden. They may not vote at all, however, which would be obviously to Biden's advantage. Well, is it possible, though, that people inside the White House that worked with Trump saw him as this reckless, dangerous, incompetent horrible, sadistic, stupid man. Uh, I've spoken to Miles Taylor, who was uh, in the Oval Office quite a bit, the chief staff to Kirsten Nielsen, the DHS head. We know that General Kelly has suggested he's actually leaked horrible stuff. Trump wanted to shoot pregnant Mexican women in the legs. Miles was telling me the other day that he, he was in a meeting with Trump where Trump was describing the the wall he wanted to build and how on top of it he wanted to put razor-sharp spikes so that the Mexicans would cut their hands and bleed to death. Mm-hmm. And all of this mm-hmm. stuff, can all of those people like Madison, Kelly and Bolton and Bill Barr and even George W. Bush and whatever's left of the Republican Party, could they collectively come forth and try to educate the people in Trump's base as to who this man is? I mean, they could try. They haven't done it yet, though. I mean, they've all been doing it. I mean, look, there are the, 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 the never-Trumpers around um, the bulwark, right? And some of them are, you know, actually very quite honorable people in the sense that they really do want to say something about Trump and get it out there. But what I've noticed is, I mean, look, is, has, has Bolton done anything to change people's minds? Has Bill Barr done anything to change? Bill Barr is, you know, is a skunk as far as I'm concerned. Um, so, you know, he, he got defenestrated, the show was up, but that's, what's he going to do? What is he going to do? And what, what could they do? They're not going to shake, I mean, are they going to shake normal Republicans? I think that the idea of normal Republicans out there is a very, what should we say, um, a very gauzy concept. Um, I, I don't think anybody's speaking to them. There are people out there, as they say, the Bulwark is the best example, who are actually saying things and trying to get things done. How effective they are, I, I, I just don't know. 
Um, so, so I don't see there being, I mean, any time that someone's tried to come up and take this party away from Trump, and that includes Mitch McConnell, by the way, has failed. They've failed. They've, they've, they, they just haven't been able to do it. And some of them don't want to, you know, um, some of them are doing an effort out of opportunism. They're trying to hold on to the label. I don't think that the Republican Party is going to be able to be reborn until the Republican Party is destroyed as it, as it exists. And um, a lot of Republicans don't want to see that, obviously. They think that they can do something short of that. But that means they have to play very, very, you know, what should we say, occasionally. And so they're going to say things, they're going to denounce them, they're going to leak terrible things. But what's going to come of it? I don't see anything coming of it particularly. So, you know, I'm, I'm not, um, I'm very discouraged on that point. Sure. Um, I, I, I admire many of these people. I mean, Kelly's, you know, a, a good man in all of this. I don't admire some of them. I admire the people at the Bulwark. Um, you know, I, I have mixed opinions about those those mm. folks. Um, but but I don't I don't see it having much political um, um, tread. You know, uh, it, it, it's treading much politically. I think that it's going to come to a showdown. There will be a showdown. And the showdown will be in November 2024, and we'll see what happens. Right. Um, well, just in the know, last couple. But just in the last uh, couple of minutes, Sean. Is it possible that what's happening here is that the United States is subject to a creeping idiocracy that because of the collapse of education and social media well, uh, providing yeah. all kinds of alternatives to reality? It's What's the explanation? I mean, what frightens me is not just we had a dangerous and insane man in the White House and he might come back. It's also mm-hmm. clear that countries can get in the grip of insanity. The Brits did that yeah. with Brexit. I'm yeah. wondering whether the the country li- really is going mad. Yeah, you make. I mean, look, you're making a good point. I just I'm going to go to a, pl- a plug for a book because I just reviewed reviewed um, Jeffrey Tubin's new book about Timothy McVeigh and the Oklahoma City bombing back in 1995, right? And he makes the point, which is very strong, is that back then, 30 years ago, Tim McVeigh thought that he could ignite a revolution. Um, by bombing a federal building, and that everybody would, you know, would, would, would rise up and overthrow the government. Right? Well, you know, that wasn't going to happen, <laughs> and it wasn't going to happen because he was still at the fringes. He was still out there, and those fringes are now—they found each other. He was looking for people. He—they've now found each other, and they found each other via social media. They found each other via the internet, and now they exert a force with, you know, billions of text messages a day, you know, flinging back and forth. That, um, um, that, that is now a political movement that, has real, that, that, that is much more substantial and is much better armed than Timothy McVeigh was, even with his fertilizer bomb truck. Um, you know, so, I, yeah, I mean, I think you're right. And it's not just the, the country's gone. Not that just that movement exists. I think there's been a degradation of, of intelligence and authority and intelligence across the board. I mean, you know, you see it everywhere. You see it, and, and the way that, 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 you know, memes and so forth, the way that the Russians can intervene. I mean, it's really strange because we've come to uh, lose any kind of grip on the truth. And when you've lost a grip on what the truth might be, well, then anything goes. And, you know, it's not that you're going crazy so much. It's just that you're getting, you know, um, you know the, the little gerbils, you know, in every little basement kind of thing. Um, and, 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 you know, even in my, even in what I study in history, you know, I mean, there's no authority, and you can say anything, any crackpot thing, and if you get it support by some big institution, then it's going to get out there and be and be followed. Um, it's junk. It's it's junk, 
and it's, we've had junk food. Now we have now we have junk ideas, and um, right. it's very frightening. Well, Sean Lorenz, I thank you so much for joining us here today. Anytime, Ian. Great to talk to you. And again, I've been speaking with Sean Lorenz, who is professor of American history at Princeton University, whose books include The Rise of the American of American Democracy, Jefferson to Lincoln, The Politicians and the Egalitarians. And his latest book is No Property of Man, Slavery and Anti-Slavery at the Nation's Founding. We're going to take a brief station break and back assessing whether the merger between the PGA and the Saudi LIV golf tournaments will ever happen. Back on track. Our values are under attack now. And the bad guys get the benefits. The rest of us pay their way. Patriots are under attack just for having their say. While I'm riding down Freedom Road, agents on my tail. You wave a flag on Christmas Day, they'll throw you in jail. Hey! Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Matt Stoller, who's a research director at the American Economic Liberties Project. He was a senior policy advisor and budget analyst to the Senate Budget Committee and also worked in the U.S. House of Representatives on financial service policies, including Dodd-Frank, the Federal Reserve, and and the foreclosure crisis. His latest book, Goliath, The Hundred-Year War Between Monopoly Power and Democracy, And he writes the Monopoly-based newsletter, Big, where his latest article is, The Saudi PGA Tour Golf Deal Isn't Going to Happen. Welcome to Background Briefing, Matt Stoller. Thanks for having me. Well, thanks for joining us, Matt. And uh, today, the United States Senate uh, launched a probe into the PGA Saudi LIV deal with Senator Richard uh, Blumenthal asking for both the PGA and LIV for an enormous amount of documentation, which I imagine is the last thing the Saudis want, right? Probably don't want that, no. It's my guess. And is there something about this deal that we don't know? I mean, the New York Times recently speculated that in many ways the Saudi deal was a way to pay off Donald Trump. We know that his son-in-law got two, at least $2 billion from the the same Saudi sovereign investment fund, and uh, Mnuchin got a billion. So do you think there's something to those that speculation? I, You know, when you're dealing with, like, the Saudi Saudis and huge amounts of, of cash and global sports, which are always really corrupt, and then Donald Trump's weird money-losing golf courses, you know, you're, you're dealing with, like, the spy world and you can never really tell what's going on there so it's a little bit like looking at the surface of the ocean and seeing ripples and waves and trying to predict or guess what's underneath it's impossible to guess it's impossible to know do i think that something more is going on absolutely do i think it has to do with trump probably 
uh, I could speculate, but it would just be speculation. Isn't it pretty established, uh, Matt Stoller, that Trump's golf courses were never a part of the PGA Tour, and he desperately wanted that kind of recognition, and they never gave it to him? Yeah, that's true. That's right. So 93% of LIV is owned by the Sovereign Wealth Fund. Do we know anything about the other 7%? No. I'm assuming it's just, I assumed it was all like Saudis, but I don't know who who the other 7% are. Right. Well, apparently there is a mysterious 7% ownership that uh, we don't know about. Tell us why you think this deal is never going to get off the ground at any rate, in, in spite of of the recent announcement, which, of course, was an enormous amount of backtracking on the part of the PGA's head, Monaghan. Because it's a merger to monopoly, right? On a legal, on a legal level, you have two competitors, PGA Tour and Live Golf. They are uh, offering prize, more prize money to the golfers because they're competing with each other. And there's a law called the Clayton Act, which is an antitrust law that says that um, you're not allowed to uh, to to merge if the point of the merger is to substantially lessen competition. And that's the point of this merger. And we know that because the head of the PGA Tour said publicly, this merger is great because we are taking the competitor off the table. And he just said it straight up. And that's if you're an antitrust lawyer or if you pay attention to merger law or antitrust, like that's crazy. That's a crazy thing to say. You, he just basically admitted to violating the law with this deal. So is there any reason for this? Is it incompetence or, I mean, he's had to do an about face, has he not? He initially rejected it and even brought up 9-11 and all the unsavory Saudi activity with the, the dismemberment of a Washington Post reporter. Yeah, I just don't know why they're doing it. I mean, that's what's so it's just such a strange situation. Like you assume that there has to be there has to be some thinking behind it. And I could see situations where they're, you know, they're they're in, they're not really intending for the deal to get done. Maybe they just want some friendly headlines because they want to get, you know, they're they're both both leagues are engaged in vicious antitrust cases against one another and they're about to go to the phase of of where they start to expose each other's uh, email, and neither one of them wants that. So, um, they they one of the conditions of this deal is that they suspend those suits. So maybe that's what they're really after, and they don't actually care if the deal falls apart. They just want to get rid of these suits. Could also be that there really is no thinking behind it. It could be that these are like rich, coddled people that that are no one ever says no to. And so there we go. I mean, who's going to say no to the head of the PGA Tour and who's going to say no to, you know, MBS who runs uh, Saudi Arabia? Like, it's not a it's not an outlandish idea that these people are just kind of idiots. Um, but there could be some reason to just want the want the headlines for a deal to make some bad news go away temporarily. And then if the deal falls apart later, they won't care. Who knows? But this is just weird. But we do know that while the uh, the rivalry was taking place and the suits and countersuits were going on between the PGA and LIV, that the Saudi Sovereign Wealth Fund, PIF, 
They were resisting discovery, were they not? Yes, they were. They were saying, you cannot look at our emails. Uh, this is not a normal commercial dispute. We are a government and governments have sovereign immunity. So this is a real thing. Typically, you cannot sue a government. And when governments are engaged in litigation, they have special rights. However, the courts in the U.S. said, well, this is normally true, but you're running a golf league, so you're acting like a corporation. You don't get, um, you're going to be treated like a corporation if you're going to act like a corporation. And they're trying to claim immunity under the Foreign Sovereign Immunity Act? Something like that, yeah. Right. And I take it the judge was not buying that. Yeah, that's right. The judge was was just was saying, no, you're if you you're you're not. It's not like you're you're engaged in something that's that that's like a government specific that governments normally do. Governments don't normally run golf leagues. You're just an investor uh, and a and a corporate actor, right? Like if they were doing something like they were buying some sort of weapon system, or they were they were engaged in in something that government like buying some infrastructure or whatever it is then they'd have more grounds to say well you can't sue us because of sovereign immunity but if they're just going to effectively operate like a um like a family-owned business it's just that this is um the family happens to be the the king or prince of saudi arabia then you're going to act like you're going to be treated like a like a normal business so if this is about a bunch of sort of rich people you know, having a spat, and one of them is uh, the PGA that I believe is a non-profit, uh, 501c3. Then they're in a spat with the LIV backed by the Saudi Sovereign Wealth Fund, and I think Trump himself said, you know, they have unlimited money, and that seems to be the case. Is there anybody going to question the PGA's tax-exempt status? Is that ever come up before and have they exposed themselves to some questions as to why they yeah, I mean I think that I think that the um, there's been John Garamendi who's a congressman has proposed revoking the PGA Tours nonprofit status so yeah there's been definitely some questions there right and I take it that what the Saudis were doing in terms of competition they were just throwing money at other players does the PGA not take care of its players? How did they manage to... I mean, they basically argued uh, not about whether they could match the salaries, but they really argued that that the Saudis were, you know, had blood on their hands, didn't they? That was their main attack against LIV. Right. I mean, it was a, it was a PR strategy where they were saying to golfers, don't sign with LIV even though they'll pay you more because you'll be working for murderers. And it was effective. They were able to keep a lot of golfers from signing with LIV, and they were able to keep sponsors from signing with LIV. Um, then they went into business with LIV. I see. So Tim Wu, who just worked for the White House as their competition chief, he, he was in, recently interviewed by Vox, uh, where he shares the same opinion that you have, Matt Stoller, that this thing is not likely to pass muster in terms of uh, antitrust. Since you've been at this for some time, do you see any uh, uptick in antitrust activity from the Biden administration? Obviously, the, this was the last thing that Trump was in, interested in. 
Uh, well, actually, it's interesting. Trump did bring an antitrust case against Google, which was the first major monopolization case in 20 years. So, um, you know, I wouldn't be so quick to dismiss Trump's um, mm -hmm. work here. Uh, yeah, the Biden administration has been great. They have um, blocked a ton of deals, uh, blocked a ton of bad deals. They have brought uh, conduct suits in things like you wouldn't necessarily notice, but like pesticides. There's a lot of really good work going on in the administration right now. Are everything from yeah pesticides to insulin to search to pharmaceuticals the defense industrial base there's there's investigations there but just to give you a quick uh, stat you know mergers and acquisitions have dropped by about 70 percent this year and some of that is financing and some of that is antitrust but that's a good thing because mergers are generally bad another example is in 2022 the ftc put out a policy statement on kickbacks in the pharmaceutical supply chain involving insulin and then earlier this year, the three major insulin producers cut their insulin list prices by 70%. And so it's been phenomenally successful. It's not something that the Biden administration really talks about, but it's been great. And um, yeah, they've been helping a lot of people with it. But in the broadest sense, though, we still have in important areas like travel, airlines, here in Hollywood, entertainment, it seems that there are fewer and fewer companies and they're merging to, and, and there's therefore less competition. That's, I don't know whether it's inexorable, but it certainly seems to be happening. Well, it's not anymore. Um, it, it was happening, but you know the Spirit and JetBlue tried to merge and they're being challenged by the Department of Transportation and the Antitrust Division. The uh, Department of, of Justice just broke up a kind of quasi-merger in the airline industry. This was an alliance between JetBlue and American Airlines, and uh, which com they basically combined their operations in Boston and New York. And the, Jet the antitrust division sued to unwind that and won last week, I believe, or two weeks ago. So it 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 feels like there's been a lot there's a lot of consolidation, but that's because there has been up until really this year, or starting late last year there was um there was a lot more antitrust activity so there's you know that we're turning we've turned the ship around um or at least it's no longer going in a bad direction we've got a lot of work to do to improve things um of course it's easy it's hard it's harder to notice that things aren't happening because of government government is stopping bad things then government is doing good things but a lot of bad things have been stopped and we will start to see better prices and things like that. Like one one example, for example, is um, last week it was reported that Tesla and General Motors did a deal where General Motors can now use Tesla's electric charging stations, right? And people think, oh, that's nice of Tesla. What they didn't report was that the reason Tesla did that is because the Biden administration put forward rules saying you have to have you have to let other car companies use your charging stations and so now we're going to have an electric vehicle charging network that is you know that's on one standard and no one can like use it in coercive or unfair ways that's an example of an antitrust success or an anti-monopoly success 
you wouldn't necessarily hear of that or know of that because the Biden administration doesn't talk about it, but it makes the world better. It makes um, it makes our electric vehicle industry better. Uh, and there's stuff like that happening all over the place. Well, I'm glad we can end on a, a somewhat optimistic note here. Yeah. Uh, and I thank you for joining us, uh, Matt Stoller. Hey, thanks a lot. And again, I've been speaking with Matt Stoller, who's a research director at the American Economic Liberties Project. He was a senior policy advisor and budget analyst to the Senate Budget Committee and also worked in the United States House of Representatives on financial services policy, including Dodd-Frank, the Federal Reserve, and the foreclosure crisis. And his latest book is Goliath, the 100-year war between monopoly power and democracy. And he writes the monopoly-focused newsletter, Big, where his latest article is, the Saudi PGA Tour golf deal isn't going to happen. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters. I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon. And this program is available for podcasting at backgroundbriefing.org, where you can sign up for our email updates as well as subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. If you like this program, you can help us reach more listeners by taking a moment to rate and review us on iTunes, Google Play, iHeartRadio, or wherever you get your podcasts. And please do share the program with friends and family and colleagues on Twitter and Facebook. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing. Bye for now.